0: From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap. A show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. It has been just over one year since COVID-19 was declared a pandemic and disrupted nearly every aspect of our daily lives. One of the industries that has been most affected has been education, and more specifically, higher education. Once the pandemic hit, every college and university was forced to move all classes online, seemingly overnight. And campus life, normally centered on close, personal interaction, became a socially distanced affair. Beyond the challenges associated with transitioning everyone to a virtual world, higher ed was thrust into a financial crisis and forced to make tough decisions on its current and future business model. The question everyone is now asking, where does higher ed go from here? Well, in today's episode, we have two college leaders who are trying to answer that question every day. Chris Rapella, who is the Dean of the College of Engineering at Marquette University and has had a decades long career inside higher ed, and Tim Hanley, the interim dean of the College of Business who spent a majority of his career outside higher ed as a partner at Deloitte. They share their insights on the structural barriers to change and how they're working to build a new model that will thrive in the post-pandemic world. Whether you're in higher education or not, this episode provides great insight on how the world is changing and what you can do to adapt, including this advice from Tim Hanley on what a great leader of the future looks like. The leaders of tomorrow are bold. They don't follow all the rules, but they're also listening, getting feedback, and open to change. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Thank you for being on Innovators on Tap, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Chuck. Great to be with you today.
1: Thank you, Chuck. Thank you for giving us this opportunity.
0: Well, uh, I'm really looking forward to this. You know, it's a unique time in higher ed, and I can't think of two people uh, that I'd rather get their perspective on and what it's really like to uh, live through this transformation. But before we do that, let me kind of start with a little bit of your guys' background. So, Chris, you're currently the dean of the College of Engineering at Marquette, and Tim, you're the acting dean of the College of Business. When you guys were starting out your careers... Did either of you ever aspire to becoming a dean or imagine you might become one someday?
1: Maybe I can start since I sort of stuck, went to the traditional academic path, but I can absolutely say never, ever, ever wanted to be a dean. That was never on my bucket list, not something I wanted to do. I didn't think it's where my interests and my talents were. So I can absolutely say, no, I did not want to be a dean and now I am doing the job.
2: Well, Chuck, as you know, my background is very different than than most deans you'll you'll ever meet. Uh, I spent 40 years split between Arthur Anderson and Deloitte, the largest accounting and consulting firm in the world. And now in Chapter 2, for a variety of reasons, I find myself in this role. So, no, absolutely never would have thought about it. Uh, but in some ways, I think it's just an incredible way to to end a career. And so I'm really excited to be in the role today. So, Chris, as you said, you've been inside academia most of your career, and Tim,
0: you've basically been outside academia for most of your career. So I'm curious, can each of you give us your perspective, both kind of the insider's view and then the outsider's view, of if you look at the challenge facing higher ed, what's the most important thing you think needs to change?
2: Chuck, I think we're at inflection point in higher education. I think if there's one thing we really need to do is we need to think about disrupting ourselves as you know I came from an outsider's view I didn't I wasn't living in this world uh, and in the all the different companies I served over my career I saw uh, saw many situations where companies needed to evaluate the world we're living in and disrupt themselves I can see us doing that in the in the college of business and I hope we'll talk before we're done today about the the new space we're looking to do that I think will really facilitate the kind of change I think we need
1: I think one of the big things that needs to change is our concept of tenure and promotion and what we reward and what we expect of faculty and their contributions. And as Tim says, I think a major disruption. Um, I think the economics of higher education are, are forcing the issue. And I think we need to think differently about whether or not we actually use tenure or long term contracts or whatever it might be but even if we preserve tenure what is the criteria for tenure what do we what do we describe as a successful faculty member and you know this idea of tenure and committing to someone long term uh, sort of in their career, and right now the uh, the criteria are actually pretty narrow. I think you know it's, I would say it's a little difficult to be truly innovative and do something differently as a faculty member, contribute differently to higher ed when our tenure and promotion criteria are actually pretty narrow in terms of how we define success in scholarship, define success in teaching, and because our tenure per- promotion criteria are very narrow, we only tenure and promote a very narrow type of person. So I don't think we allow a diversity, a lot of diversity into our faculty workforce because of it as well. So if you truly want to be innovative, have a much more diverse workforce. We need to think differently about how we how we look at tenure and promotion and the criteria that we use to define success uh, in our institutions.
0: You know, I think Chris, you're you're touching on one of the things I want to talk about, which I I think there are structural barriers to how these institutions have evolved that kind of get in the way, and so I want to talk more about tenure because to me, this is the one that, as a business person, it's a really Unusual concept, right? Um, You know, there was a time when, you know, companies basically how long you work there is all that mattered. But we've kind of evolved past that over the last couple of decades. And, you know, one of the things I noticed is that the history of tenure is, I think, well intended, but it lacks once you get there these contracts really create a a situation where it's hard to hold someone accountable to keep evolving and getting better. If you could implement one idea to start moving this forward, what would you do tomorrow?
1: I mean, I don't know if it's a matter of saying just eliminating tenure or just really totally redefining the, the criteria for tenure. Um, in ways that, first of all, allow much more, much greater diversity in what faculty can do in their contributions to student success or contributions to the university, their contributions to um, the academy, if if you want to call it that way, as well as much more um, feedback and post-tenure evaluation and really outlining uh, expectations Much, maybe much more quantitatively or much more concretely, so that we can look at people and say, "You just really aren't performing up, you know, up to what you should be," and your peers are saying that as well. And then you can, and it's easy to take action on it.
2: Chuck, maybe I could compare this to what I saw in the in the corporate world. So you know, I grew up in the largest accounting firm in the world, and and in the early days, your compensation would grow as your tenure grew. We really found it was very difficult to really uh motivate and then properly compensate the truly high performers and so if there's one thing i'd like to see us do which i think candidly we can do with the right kind of funding is really look at those people they may not even be tenure track yet but we know they're the best at research they're the best at collaboration they're the best teachers and find ways to really compensate them and reward them. You know, you said something the other day about, hey, listen, you, you, what you measure and what you incentivize happens. And so I'd like to see us do even more of that. And we're talking about that in the College of Business. Could we set up some funding mechanisms that allow us to much better reward those really high-performing faculty that may be early in their careers? That could be the futures of this college standing tender and find ways to do that in a way that really makes them want to be here and feel like they're really rewarded.
0: So I want to go to my second structural challenge that I was thinking about, which is this idea of shared governance. So when I think about shared governance, it sounds great on the surface, right? It, it it's It's what everyone would like to believe can happen. But when I think specifically about trying to do something that is really innovative, especially a disruptive innovation idea, it is the farthest thing from a democracy that I ever experienced because it's actually not good for everyone. It's called a disruption. And so that means that some people are going to end up in a place that's not as good as where they started and not everyone's going to be able to adapt. One of our podcast guests said that committees lead to compromise and compromise leads to lousy products. And I have wrote that down because I thought it was kind of interesting business perspective. So I'm curious, I understand the tradition of shared governance, but I'm curious, how do we get beyond this so that we can move faster? Or do you think I'm wrong? Do you think it's something that can work
2: in this model going forward? I think we in higher ed have to be more nimble. But by the way, I said that same thing, particularly the last five years of my business career. I think it's really important to be nimble because the environment is changing so quickly. Our customers are changing, as you know, in higher ed. Their demands are changing. What they needs are changing. And the need to be nimble is so important. And what I think the challenge that, that we face, as you very rightly said, is this concept of shared governance, which seems to be sometimes taken to the nth degree, is that everybody has to agree before any decision is made doesn't really allow organizations to be nimble. And I think it does slow down the process. I can sense it doesn't necessarily lead to the best answer. Uh, so, you know, I think a lot of this is around communication. And certainly I know Chris and I, we, we talk a lot about this together, and we've been very focused on how we communicate to all the faculty in our respective colleges, in particularly in this time. Uh, and again, that's how I grew up. That's how I was raised in the career that 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 I served that wasn't necessarily shared governance the shared governance world. And so w- what I am concerned about as a leader today is can we be nimble at a time when we need to be nimble more than ever? And Chris, I'd love to get your take on that.
1: Thank you. Yeah. I mean, a couple of ideas. I mean, the idea of shared governance is certainly like you said, Chuck, you know, ideally it sounds great, right? You know, faculty want to have Input and contribute to um, ideas, how things are how we operate, how things are done, what we think is important for students to learn, what we think the outcome should be. It all sounds great. And I would say the positive of shared governance is if you do a good job of inviting lots of different voices to the table, you actually can be more innovative, right? All of a sudden, instead of all decisions being made in one room with the same, you know, four or five administrators or whatever it might be, which as you know gets leads to groupthink and doesn't allow for innovation, you're inviting lots of voices, and that's the good part of shared governance. The downside is that people often sort of again what their perception is of shared governments. And as you have both been saying, the idea that everybody has to agree and everybody has to, you know, has to compromise is the downside of it, right? Because we end up having way too many meetings. We spend way too much time talking everybody again these are a bunch of people who have phds thinks they're an expert in some way and has to share just get on the stage and share for long periods of time and most of the time we don't get anywhere and oftentimes like you said the stakes are really small why are we spending so much time let's just make a decision let's move forward so it can really halt progress as you said and keep things from happening and so it really comes down to chuck something that we talk a lot about is leadership issues i think you asked me what i should would change most in academia as i'm thinking about it now It's about how we develop leaders in academia and for many many years we didn't it's sort of because people had a phd all of a sudden you knew they were going to be they were supposed to be a great teacher and a great researcher and you moved them into leadership positions and they should just be a good leader because they have a phd right and that i would say is the biggest problem so i think leadership in general academia has a long way to go in terms of sort of more intentional development and training and how to be a good leader and how to work with your people, and how to set a vision, and how to uh, you know, do all those things that we really think about leadership. Not management. I think we do plenty of management in academia, but true leadership, which includes having really hard conversations and honest conversations and being able to look in the mirror. And I think those are the things we don't do well in, in, in academia.
0: I want to get to one last structural thing before we get into your personal thoughts. As I look at a university, up until recently... It has been essentially not subject to what I would call market realities and competition. So one of the things that keeps most businesses you know, uh, fresh and renewing is the market. For a lot of reasons, universities didn't feel this pressure up until recently. And so when that happens for a really long time, I think that you start to get a mindset of people that they're just oblivious to it. It's kind of where the taxi companies were. 10 years ago. Once you had the medallion in your city, you had a contract that only you could deliver people around. It wasn't until Uber showed up, ignored that whole system that everyone realized, oh, I guess we actually have to become more flexible. So what can we do to accelerate this understanding that whether you're a faculty or you're an administrator, but a university is actually subject to the market?
2: So I, let, me, let me make a couple of comments because this is where I see, one, we're at this inflection point now, Chuck, where I think this is the reality. And I think part of it is our customers are now thinking ROI, right? They're thinking, I need a return on my investment. I'm not sure uh, an 18 to 22-year-old necessarily thought about ROI like they're thinking today because there are options like there never were before. Maybe they come from community college. Maybe they come from other for-profit Uh, educational organizations that have been set up. But there's clearly an ROI. And that has to make us think both about our price point and and about our model. And by the way, what we can deliver in in terms of the kind of job that uh, comes out on the other end and what sort of profession we enable. And so I think the interesting part that I can kind of see our mindset changing here at Marquette is we're thinking now about ROI, because we have to. And I think the higher ed world up until recently, Chuck, was pretty immune to that. Right. They kept passing along four percent tuition increases. They kept bringing on more services and got people compensated a bit better. And, And that just happened for decades. And I think we now recognize that's gone. And I think this is back to this point about being nimble and what Chris and I are seeing and and you are, are watching it too. It's playing out here at Marquette. It's playing out uh, all over the country is I think it's going to force a business model change, which is really interesting. So we're kind of right in the middle of all that today. Chris, I'd love to kind of get your take on what you're seeing.
1: A lot of it starts with just some very fundamental conversations about what is a college degree? What is a university degree? What should it be? and you'll see very different opinions there there are people who will go to the very traditional of what university education about which was just learning for the sake of learning right and and the love of learning and just intellectual engagement to the other extreme which is no they need to have a job when they get out of here and they need to learn something applied and they need to needs to be um, relevant to what's going on in the world right so these are the you know some extremes that you're seeing and so I think each of us as institutions has, you know, has to figure out what Tim talked about which is what is a return on investment and what's our unique niche what what are we going to be good at that people are willing to pay something for to come and I think that's the hard thing right now is we can't be everything and if there are, you know, people in our neighborhood and in our country who do programs much better we just won't do it here and that's really hard particularly when you have a lot of tenured faculty in an area who have been here for a long time and invested a lot in that and then students in Marquette and now you're suddenly telling them you know what it's not relevant or we don't need as many of you i mean you know that's that's what we're, we're running into i think the other thing we need to look at is what do universities offer for the price tag so we hear parents and students all the time talk about you know complaining about the cost of tuition at the same time when they come to visit they want to see fancy dorms they want to see nice workout facilities they want to see um, you know, club sports—they want to see all kinds of offerings in terms of mental and physical, you know, uh, health and that kind of stuff. That all costs money, right? That's all stuff that you add on top. And so, what—you know, again—what are you willing to pay for it? And will it become more like maybe the airline industry? So you come here and you get a basic dorm and a basic, uh, you know, switching education. And then for this price tag, you can add on, you know, a fancier dorm, or you can add on rec. And I don't know. Maybe it's going—we're going to start paying for it by whatever you use. You know, these are all things that could happen.
0: Guys, I really appreciate your perspective, and I hope you understand that. You know, I was challenging, pushing some things pretty hard. Just, I wanted to see what you're thinking. You guys are living through this incredible transformation that truly is shaping the future of higher ed. And uh, I really appreciate your candor and your honesty, and honestly, the great work you're doing. So, with that, I want to switch gears a little bit. You know, you two both have had tremendous success. Uh, through two very different careers, although you end up in similar leadership roles right now. And so I want to get into your individual mindsets and kind of how you view you know, both leadership and innovation and how you try to do that. So do you believe that your success has come more from avoiding failure or
2: embracing failure? Uh, because I think in, in, in many ways, the leadership style that I've developed was because I experienced failure. Uh, whether i embraced it or not i certainly experienced it and chuck you, you may know i was a senior partner at arthur anderson at the very end of that terrific firm in 2002 and you know the funny thing is is that the lessons i learned in managing that crisis you know i never thought i would put them to use uh, quite as much because candidly you know chris and i are in crisis here at marquette we're managing through this pandemic and we're trying to to see our business model change at the same time and and and, and give a little bit of uh, of calmness to some very concerned faculty and students for that matter and and so i think in in many ways i i think the the many stumbles along my different career path probably make me a better leader today uh and certainly one that has seen a lot more than maybe others have and hopefully if there's a little bit of what i'm bringing to marquette it is that
1: so for me, I think it's definitely about embracing risk and failure. And maybe part of it is I get bored easily, so I have to keep trying new things. Um, and so I can pretty much from the first semester I ever taught here, I think students will tell you I tried some very different things in the classroom compared to my colleagues. Some really crazy. I did review games. I did all kinds of things that they actually and loved. Same thing with my research. I embraced trying new collaborations. I had a number of people from very different research areas approach me and things I knew nothing about. And I thought, you know, for me, it was all about intellectual engagement and opportunity to learn. I'm one of my strengths as a learner and I love to learn. And so I love trying new things, doing new things, um, trying new programs, meeting new people, starting new relationships. And there's a risk for all of that, right? And some of them fail. Sure, We've started things that, you know, started out all right and then failed or weren't embraced by people necessarily in the way we thought it would be. And that's okay. But it was exciting to give it a try and to to think about things differently.
0: So if you're going to build a team with a specific focus on really trying to drive innovation and new ideas, what's more important to their success? Embracing a culture of brutal honesty, even if it makes people uncomfortable, or creating an environment of psychological safety where you adjust the conversations and purposely try to avoid confrontations?
2: Well, again, I, I grew up in a, in a different world. And where I saw success, it was very much the former, where you invited constructive debate, Chuck. And, and, and even I see this. I think this example I gave you a few minutes ago about this new program offering, we had constructive debate about it. And I think as long as it's constructive, right, that always gets you to a better answer. And You want to invite a, an opposing point of view. We're better because we have opposing points of view. We're better because we have diverse teams that see things differently. And I think that, I think the world of safety never gets you to the best answer. And hopefully, because uh, at least in our two colleges, we're trying to invite that kind of constructive debate, we're going to get to a better place
1: yeah I would agree. I think the culture of honesty and brutal honesty and authenticity um, and transparency are key, right? And so but it's creating a culture when people are are feel safe to disagree and debate and and have that con- that constructive conflict, right. So I think it's really about creating a culture where people feel safe to do that. And so sometimes that is it is about teaching our leaders about how to do that, right? It's not obvious. Um, i like to talk about you know stu- most people only learn how to deal with conflict in their families and most families are really bad at it so in our work environments let's teach people how to do it in a constructive way where it's healthy to disagree it's healthy to bring different opinions um and separating it from person right don't take it personally but really it's about the idea it's about the the um whatever is being proposed at the time and let's feel to do it and i feel like i have a team who does that really well right now it's not about personal attack it's not about it's, it's about collectively how are we gonna how are we going address this problem do something new try some new things
0: So if you're going to describe how you personally approach problems, would you say that you are more likely to think outside the box, build a better box, or set the box on fire?
2: I I would say for me, uh, I'm more of a think outside the box person. And so I like to, again, even in this world I'm living in today, I'm trying to bring my 40 years of corporate thinking into a university environment, which sometimes doesn't always feel comfortable to people. And so I'd say I'm more of an outside of the box thinker uh, than anything else.
1: Yeah, I think probably for me, it's a combination of thinking outside the box as well as setting the box on fire. I think I do some of both. I, you know, I was kind of the kid in the school who whenever we had a project, I, you know, my dad sort of instilled this in me is be different from everybody else, try to be different, have, you know, where your project stands out. And so that creativity piece was always important to me. And I think still is to this day in everything that I do. So but some of that is thinking outside the box, and sometimes it's just completely ripping it down and doing something different.
0: So, when you are evaluating talent for the team, what are the characteristics that you're looking
2: for? So, I'd I'd say three things. One, uh, looking for a, someone who's truly a team player, and that they have demonstrated capabilities around team team player. But two, uh, I'm really a big believer in you've got to approach things with a positive and optimistic point of view. Number two and three, I want someone who's willing to be disruptive. Now, maybe sometimes you think, well, can you be disruptive and be positive at the same time? I think you can be. So I think those are three attributes that I've always valued. And hopefully there's a little bit of that in my own leadership style, Chuck.
1: So yeah, for something similar, I think for me, it's number one, their people skills, which is really about emotional intelligence. I look for a lot of that because I think that's important, whether you're in good times or bad. I look for authenticity. Nothing bothers me more than people who say one thing to you and say something different when they get out of your office. I can't, I don't want those. I want them, I want the conversations in the meeting, not in the hallways outside the meeting. Um, and I want people who aren't afraid conflicts, who aren't afraid to have those hard conversations.
0: Those are great characteristics. I love all of those. Um, what advice would you have for young faculty and administrators that really want to try and innovate within higher
2: ed? So I would say one, those are the kind of people we wanna have on our faculty. And I think we we had a lot of them. I would encourage them one, to be bold, but also to listen. And so I, I think the, the faculty that, that, that I can see that Uh, that are going to be our leaders of tomorrow. I think they're bold. They don't necessarily follow all the rules, but they're also listening and they're getting feedback. And so in in that way, I think they're, they're open to change because I think if you're not open to change, even for Chris and I, I hope to think we're still open to change. And we've been at this for a little longer than most. So I see those are a couple of things that that I would look for the advice I'd give.
1: Yeah, I would say um, try to have a seat at the table, you know, lean in as, you know, as as we hear often, is lean in, don't sit back, don't be afraid that, you know, it's okay to bring up your voice, but I talk a lot about with some of our young faculty about how to do that in a way that people will listen. I think Tim, exactly what Tim says, listen and observe. I think that's really important. Observe people. Observe people's behaviors. Look at how they respond to things, you know, because that'll help you think about how you approach them in, in conversation in the future, how you bring up disruption to them. So watch the people, watch how the, no two people are alike and some are very welcome and some are going to be really system So they have to learn something about really about people skills, I think, early on in order to sort of Sell their ideas, and so do a lot of listening, observing. Not the, not necessarily about innovation, but I think it's an important part for building culture, so that people will, will trust you and want to follow you. Right there's that's a big piece of it, and you can you can do a lot more innovation, take more risk when you have people who are who believe in you and trust you and are willing to to take a chance.
0: I want to bring up a project that you two have been working on over the last couple of years and it started with Chris and I working on Innovation Alley and then it really led into this partnership with the College of Business and the new business school and really trying to bring these two ideas together. And I guess what I'd like to know is two things. One, why are we building a new building in a world that's going to virtual? How does that make us more innovative? And two, How are we going to overcome the natural instincts of these two colleges to want to be separate versus
2: working together? Well, Chuck, Chuck, let me me take a start on that because I've been pretty involved, as you know, in the new business building design. And, And as I see this, this facility will be an enabler for our strategy. And we've been greatly informed about the future, Chuck. As we think about how we design our space, and we've been living through the last 10 months of seeing how uh, education will be delivered, I think it's been to some degree a blessing because we've been informed and our space, I think, is looking a fair amount different than it otherwise would have. We're going to have an ability in in this new world, which I think is going to require both in-person and remote offerings. We're going to have an ability to have every classroom technology enabled with 360 classrooms. We're going to have a couple of small studios. But maybe more importantly, because I think at the heart of at least the Marquette educational experience, it's in person with our students. We're going to have a building that's going to be amazingly open to the public. Because I think we're going to need to have collisions to happen, Chuck, between our faculty and our students and our stakeholders. So think our our community organizations and our employers. And I think we're going to have a space that can enable that. And what I've loved about this throughout this process, uh, Chuck, is how Chris has been such a great partner in this because, you know, the two of us think around this idea of innovation now, the intersection of the college of business and the college of engineering. And by the way, we've got spaces designed for Chris's leadership program that you and Chris founded. We want to host that in our space. And I think that will just be the part of how this facility can be a real collaborator on our campus, Chuck. So those would be at least a couple of thoughts. But I think Chris's insight here has been hugely helpful in our our thinking on space design.
1: Thank you. And Tim, I would say we're very excited for, um, you know, College of Business to um, create their new facility. Uh, And if I just use the example of our engineering building when we built it, probably the same thing. We need another building. And yet, students love to hang out there right that was our goal is that they would hang out there 24 7 and they love to hang out there it builds community it builds culture it's where they have lots of collisions i mean you look at companies like epic systems out in madison right which is mostly computer programming work right doesn't need to necessarily be in a building and yet They've asked all their employees to come back because they feel like their, their innovative spirit has really declined during this whole COVID experience of being away. So there's something to be said. And and I think many of your companies in Silicon Valley knew this a while ago, and that's why they created the campuses that they did.
0: You know, I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that's become obvious to me is, is that this idea of being virtual, there's definitely things we can do virtually, and you certainly can enable communication, but it tends to be, I would, I call um, multiple one-way communications. Even though we're having a conversation via video, there's something different when you put people in the same room and you get the benefits of body language and honestly, just expectations of how you behave around one another. And I think there's no doubt that going forward that uh, humans want to be together some amount of time. And I think that uh, I'm really excited about the building and the collaboration you guys have going on guys, I want to thank you both for spending the time with us. Uh, your insights have been incredible. Um, the work you're doing, you know, it's important for Marquette, but uh, your leadership's actually going to show higher ed some things that we can do better in the future. And uh, I couldn't be more proud of of what you've accomplished, but more excited about what's going to come next. So thank you for being on the show. And uh, we can't... L- wait to see what this transformed college experience looks like under your leadership over the next few
2: years. Thanks, Chuck. It's been great fun. Always great to be with Chris and you. And thank you so much for all your service to us, Chuck, over these years. Uh, You've been an amazing partner to us.
1: Yeah, thank you, Chuck. It's been First of all, thank you for giving us the opportunity. It's such an honor and such a joy to be on here. And you've, you know, you stepped up and did everything we sort of asked of you a few years ago um, with this podcast, with your book. And just the conversations we've had have just been awesome, and um, you know intellectually engaging and um, insightful, and just helped us to innovate. So thank you for doing that for us.
0: Thanks to Chris Rapella and Tim Hanley for joining me on today's episode and sharing their incredible insight, including this perspective from Chris: You have to build community, you have to build culture, and you have to have collisions. It's those conversations that you have every day that spark new ideas. We wanna thank all of you who have embraced this show and helped us grow our audience so far. While we're proud of our success, we're just getting started and hopefully you'll tell your friends about the show. We'd also really appreciate it if you take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Please note that we have additional resources available on our website at innovatorsontap.com. Thanks for joining us on this journey and let's go change the world. Mm-hmm.